Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11 this morning. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Um, we are starting a new series this, this week. It, it may be eight weeks. It's going to be at least eight weeks, all right? Let's just say that. It's going to be at least eight weeks. Um, we'll see where it goes from there. But we are starting a new series this week called Brand New. The, the, the nature of our salvation, the story of our salvation, the story of the Gospels, and, 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 and the story of the Gospel, rather. And, and, what, and in order to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to take each week talking about a particular element in the gospel narrative. Now, the gospel is actually seen in a number of different ways. There's, there's, um, there's people who, or there's themes that run through scripture where you see the gospel painted in different pictures, or uh, painting different pictures. One thing that you see in the gospel is the, is the, is the, is the theme of God, man, Christ response. And another thing that you see throughout the gospel is more of a cosmic theme, which is the theme of creation, fall, Restoration, redemption rather, and, and, and then consummation or, or the, the, the glorification, if you will. And so you see these themes, individual themes, God, man, Christ response. That's more of like at an individual level, a personal level, on the ground as, as Matt Chandler and, and uh, Jared Wilson would say. But then also you see cosmic themes, creation, fall, redemption. And then glorification, consummation. And so we're, we're going to deal with all of those themes over the next, couple, uh, next several weeks, at least eight. And like I said, we may deal with some other things along the way. But this morning I want to deal with the theme of God. God. And in Romans 11, chapter, 30, chapter 11, verse 33 through 36, we get introduced to this God. Now, as I've mentioned the several past, uh, for, the, for the past several weeks, the Bible is a book, first and foremost, about God, not about us. So when we approach the Bible, we, we should approach it looking to first learn what's, what it's saying about God. And when we do, what, what, what we will often find is that we will learn how this God is connected to us. And as we look at God first, our purpose and our direction and our destiny will round into shape, all right? In other words, in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the writer says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. You start with the Lord. And as you begin with the Lord, then wisdom for your life and how to live and navigate this life begins to round into shape. True wisdom begins with a healthy and reverential fear of God. Now, you probably often heard it said that you, that you don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Well, God is the forest. We are the trees. And when we fix our attention on the individual trees first, we are not only going to miss the forest, but we are going to miss knowledge that will help us better understand the trees. And this goes for everything in Scripture, by the way. Every subject, including the subject in which we will be discussing for the next couple of months, um, the subject of salvation. And so before we can understand the nature of our salvation, we need to understand the nature of our God. 
In fact, part of the reason why I believe so many unbelievers and even some believers are so unimpressed by the gospel story and what God accomplishes in saving us is because they have yet to grasp how unbelievably impressive God is. They're not impressed by the gospel because they're not impressed by God. In fact, one pastor uh, by, the name, uh, by the name of Greg Gilbert, he wrote a book called What is the Gospel that kind of talks about these themes of God, man, Christ's response. He says, he says in that book, in the, very, in the very early chapters, he says this, you might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleeping now. He's old, you know, and doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the ones he talks about when you really get him going, were a long time ago, before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared what he thought about things and considered him important to their lives. Of course, all that's changed now. Though, uh, and, and, and God, poor fellow, just never really adjusted well to the changes. Life's moved on and passed him by. Now he spends most of his time just hanging in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him, and there we tarry, walking and talking tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still see him, still like him, rather. It seems, or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. And you'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit and ask for things every once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's here to help. Thank goodness all the crankiness you read about sometimes in his old books, you know, having the earth swallow people up, raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing. All that seems to have faded in his old age. Now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back. And when he does, it's usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do regardless is all right by him. That really is the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him, though? He doesn't judge me ever for anything. Oh, sure, I, I know that deep down he wishes I'd be better, more loving, more or less selfish and all that, but he's realistic. He knows I'm human and nobody's perfect. And I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job, is what he does. After all, he's love, right? I like to think of love as never judging and only forgiving. Okay, we can go in now, and don't worry, we don't have to stay long. Really, he's grateful for any time he can get, end quote. I believe Gilbert captures our sentiments towards God spot on. We are unimpressed by God. For far too many of us, God feels outdated, out of touch, distant, passive, ineffective, for far too many of us, God feels like a fumbling, bumbling man past his prime. Someone that we go to out of sheer guilt and we, we see every blue moon, but no one that, that we are actually trying to build our lives around. Someone that we turn to only when we have to absolutely turn to him. And we've exhausted every other resource that's available to us. And as a result of that posture towards God, the way we view salvation is ultimately impacted. We are unimpressed by God, and as a result, we are unimpressed by the gospel. I mean, sure, it's important, but we don't treat it as earth-shattering. 
It certainly gives us a decent way to raise our children. But truthfully, as long as they grow up and don't get in any trouble and get really good jobs and raise pretty decent families and go to church a little here and there, we probably don't mind all that much if they come to know Jesus in any deep way. It certainly gives me a decent way to live my life, some of us say. Gives me a way to live my life with a good group of folks that I can build connection with and community with, but it's not essential to me. And if somebody, if somebody takes Christianity away from me, all right, I ain't going to die or nothing. I'll just do something else. That's how many of us view this faith. And that's how many of us view this God. We are unimpressed by God. And we are unimpressed by the gospel of God. However, one person is very impressed by God. And that is the Apostle Paul. Paul, we see, is impressed by God in this text that we're reading this morning, Romans chapter 11. Let me give you a little bit of information about Paul before we dive into this for the next couple of minutes. What's interesting about Paul being impressed by God is the fact that Paul himself is an impressive man. He is, not a, he is not a man with subpar credentials. He is not a man with inferior intellect. He is not a man with lackluster prominence in his community. No, on paper, before Christ, Paul stacks up well with the men of his day. He comes from good stock. He's well-established. He's well-educated. He's highly regarded. He's deeply respected. In fact, when speaking about impressive uh, resumes, Paul takes time to describe his resume in Philippians chapter 3. And he says this, he says, though I myself have reason and confidence or for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he says this, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is saying, if any of you consider yourself to be impressive, check my resume. Paul before Christianity would be the guy in your circles that everybody wished they could be. And yet, after he lays all of this out, we get this word from him in that same chapter. He says, but... After laying his resume out, he says, but, but what, Paul? You're great. Everybody loves you. You're fantastic. What are you talking about? What is there left to say, Paul, after such a description of an impeccable resume? What is left to say, Paul, after, in the words of, in the words of Aloe Black, we could tell everybody. We could tell everybody. Go on, tell everybody, Paul. He's the man. He's the man. He's the man. What is there left to say, Paul? But Paul says, but. Verse 7 of chapter 3, he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
In other words, Paul is saying, when I considered my resume and all the connections that I had and the good stock that I was born into and the strong education that I possessed, and I placed it against Christ, the impress- impressiveness of my resume became manure, became dung, poop. One psalmist writes, or one song or, or one author writes, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Paul is saying when I turn my gaze to Jesus, I realize that nothing and no one was more impressive. So instead of staking my life on advancing my interests and and advancing my resume and trying to make me more impressive, I begin to stake my life on knowing this impressive God more. And it's this passion that, that's, that's at work in Romans chapter 11. It's this enthusiasm to know God more that we see on display. This is a passage that has been known as a passage of doxology. That is a passage of worship. It's a spontaneous moment of worship for Paul. It seems like it comes out of nowhere. Paul, before chapter 11, verse 33, Paul is actually having a very technical and intricate discussion about the nature of God's salvation for Israel and for the Gentiles. But as he ponders God's masterful control over the salvation of Israel and the world, it leads Paul to sing a song that basically says, how great is our God. Romans chapter 11, verse 33, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and, and judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Paul begins his song of praise with God's wisdom and God's knowledge. Who on earth? could come up with this design for salvation, Paul is saying, and the answer is no one. In the words of one theologian, who but God could have conceived a plan that would turn disobedience into an occasion for mercy and in the process reach out universally to all who would believe? Think about that. It feels oftentimes like things are off course, doesn't it? When you think about what's going on in the world and you think about what's going on um, as it relates to uh, righteousness and unrighteousness, it almost feels like a car is speeding fast down a narrow winding road and the brakes have gone out. And yet here is God not only saying that I am in control, but here is God saying I am very much a part of the design. We see the same thing with Christ and his crucifixion. What appears to be absolute chaos is all a part of the design and the plan of God. Now, before the resurrection, the apostles slash disciples were panicking about what was going on as they saw what was happening to Christ. But after the resurrection, they came to realize that God knew exactly what he was doing, which was why they could say in Acts chapter 4, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
In other words, yeah, everybody was against you, but nobody was working outside of you. You controlled it all. Here's what Paul is saying, and here's what Scripture testifies to. God knows everything, all the designs, all the plans, all the actions, before, present, and after, God knows. The Bible says in Luke chapter 12, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He knows the number of every single strand of hair on every single head in the world throughout all of time. Now that's easy calculation sometimes for some of us. But I'm talking about the rest of y'all who are blessed with Beautiful manes. Psalm 147, chapter 4, he says, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. The next time you're gazing at the night sky and wondering what beyond, what, what's beyond all of this, what you can, uh, what's beyond what you can see, Remember that God knows the number of stars in every galaxy in the entire universe, both known and unknown. And he knows each of their dates of origin and the date that they will die. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. The next time you get a notification in your phone reminding you about your friend's birthday, remember that God knows the date of every single human birth and every single human death throughout human history. And he knows the purpose of that birth and he knows the design for each and every single one of them that are born. The next time you're on a beach and you scoop into your hands a pile of sand that you can't count, remember that God knows the count of every single grain of that sand on every single beach in the world. And not only that, those beaches, but he knows the count of every single grain, grain of sand at the bottom of the sea next to those beaches. And not only does he know that count, but he knows the count of every single grain of sand on Mars and any other planet that may have sand. God knows everything. And when we think about all that God knows versus what we know, it's no wonder that Paul quotes the prophets in verse 34 of chapter 11, and he says this, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? 90% of us, don't know what we're eating tomorrow. 95% of us, 99% of us even, don't know what we're wearing tomorrow to work. Most of us don't even know tomorrow's date. 100% of us don't even know if we're going to be here tomorrow. And yet we are convinced that somehow, some way, we know what God is supposed to be doing in this world. And we know what God is supposed to be doing with our lives. How often do you explain 
budget decisions in your home to your cat or to your dog? How often do you explain your decisions to get their vaccination shots when the calendar, calendar dictates that it's time? Come on, buddy. Time for the heartworms. Come on, man. No, this is good for you. This is going to be really, really good for you. Do you spend time breaking down your vacation plans with them and why you have to board them for a week or why Uncle, Uncle Bobby has to come over? Why? Why don't you do that? Why don't you explain all of this to them? Because the dog is not only not on your intellectual level, the dog is infinitely below your intellectual level. The cat is infinitely below your intellectual level. But guess what? God is infinitely more beyond us than we are beyond our dogs and cats. It is a demonstration of unbelievable grace and unbelievable mercy that God even takes the time to explain anything to us. The fact that he gives us a collection of 66 books breathed out from his own mouth is an unbelievable demonstration of grace and mercy. God knows everything, and we know very, very little. Paul understands this. Hence, this is the reason why he is so impressed by God. And so impressed by God that, that, that uh, so impressed not only by God, but impressed that this God would come to save us. But not only is this God all-knowing, this God is also all-sufficient. Paul says in verse 35, chapter 11, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God literally has no need. None. He has no need of anything. Throughout all of Scripture, without question, next to Christ himself, there is no other person who experienced more trials than Job. Job spends a great deal of time in the Scripture asking the Lord, what are you doing? And, and, for, and for most of the book, God is quiet. And then in chapter 38, God finally speaks up. And when he does, there are two things that we learn amongst a number of things that we learn. Two, two very important things. Number one, God knows more. Number two, God has no need of anything. He tells him in the very opening response, he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Translation, Brian Crawford translation, who is it that's talking to me that don't know what they're talking about? <laughs> I mean, that, that's the translation. Who is, it, who is it that's talking to me that doesn't know what they're talking about? Come, let me educate you. And then he, and then he begins to educate Job, he says, verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know who measured this earth. Job, who stretched the line upon it? Surely you were there when all of this was being formed. Job, since you have such deep opinions about what I'm doing. In other words, yes, I know that you're suffering, Job, but do you dare suppose that I don't know what I'm doing just because the only thing you know about is your suffering? You know about your suffering, but I know about eternity. You know about your suffering, but I know about the universe and the universes that you don't even know about. You think you understand what's happening in your family, but I understand what's happening everywhere. 
I know what's happening throughout all of eternity, both past, both present, and future. You know something, Job. I know everything, though. And then in chapter 41, he says this in verse 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I don't owe anyone anything. I don't need anything from you. I own everything. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. God knows everything and God needs nothing. Do you hear it? God knows everything and God needs nothing. Sometimes you and I, we lose sight of this. Sometimes we lose sight of this. Sometimes we try to broker deals with God. God, if you give me this, then I'll do this. You give me this, I'll give you that. God, if you do this, then I'll serve you. It's like we're, it's like we're, offering, a, it's like we're offering a chewed up rib. Chewed up rib to God. God, come on, come on, what can we negotiate? With it? And we hold no, we hold a rib bone. There's nothing for me. I, I mean, what are you talking about? I own everything. You don't have anything that I don't own. I own you. I understand that those words sometimes are spoken out of desperation for God to move, but we must refuse to live a life that communicates such a posture. A posture, in other words, that says this. I'm doing what I'm doing because God needs me to do it. Or I'm worshiping God in life because it is a privilege for God to receive my worship. Let me share something with y'all. Hot off the press this morning. God has no need of us. Are you tracking with that? He has no need of us. He doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our worship. Now, before we go too far, he desires it. You understand that? He desires it. He loves to see us worship. He loves to see us serve him, but he doesn't need it. Very important distinctions. When Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, in his final days leading up to his crucifixion, and people were crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees grew angry saying, Jesus, get your people. You hear what they're saying? Jesus responds back to them with this. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If they don't praise me, the rocks will. In other words, I don't need anybody to worship me. I can bring life and intellect out of dead and dumb things in order that they may worship me. God knows everything, and God needs nothing. No, he, no, listen, he really and truly needs nothing. You know, some of the wealthiest people in the world, um, Jeff Bezos and founder of Amazon and Sir Richard Branson, the, the founder of the Virgin Group, recently orchestrated back-to-back trips to the edge of the Earth's atmosphere, kind of dipped their toe into space. Anybody hear about that recently? Big news, really excited. You know, I mean, it was was on the news channels if you you were watching, big stuff. 
Sometimes we're tempted to look at these men and look at all their wealth and say to ourselves, these men are literally in need of nothing. But of course they're in need. They needed all the workers in their organization that make their organization as, as successful as they are. They, they need the ingenuity of others to help them design and build the spaceships that they flew, flew uh, to, the Earth's, uh, to the edge of the Earth's atmosphere in. They need the raw materials that were used to construct these ships. They need ideal environments that they cannot create, that they must wait on. They need experienced pilots. They need all systems functioning when they get in the air because if they malfunction, there is nothing they can do once they're up there. No, they need, the wealthiest among us need, and they need a lot. On the other hand, when we say that God has no need, we mean that he literally has no need. He doesn't need any raw materials for, uh, from anyone, for example, to construct a ship. He made the raw materials. He doesn't need any ingenuity from scientists and pilots on how to create the right ship to fly. He created the scientists and the pilots and gifted them with the intellect. He doesn't need to wait on the environmental conditions um, to be just right to do what he wants to do. The wind and the waves move at the sound of his voice. The sun rises and sets with the wave of his hand. God literally needs nothing, and God literally owes no one. Paul understands this, and that's the reason why he is so impressed by God. And that's the reason why he is so impressed that God would come to save him. But not only is this God all-knowing, and not only is this God all-sufficient, but this God is all-powerful. Romans 11 Verse 36 says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. God knows everything. God needs nothing. And everything that exists, exists through him. Paul says first, from him. In Genesis chapter 1, verse one through three, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, out, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the, spirit of the God, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Think about that for a moment. Close your, eye, close your eyes if you have to. Literally before the grass, literally before the waters, Literally before the buildings and the skyscrapers, literally before the planes and the trains and the automobiles, before the lions and the tigers and the bears. I just, I knew Corey was going to say that, by the way. Just set it up for him to knock it out of the park right there. Literally before anything, there was nothing. And God just simply spoke. Universe. Boom. Mars, Venus, Pluto, Sun, stars, Earth. He spoke it, 
and wield the process of design to begin. No starter kit, no raw materials, just an all-powerful speaking God. But not only that, that's not all. Through him, not only is everything created from him, but everything is sustained and kept through him. Nothing that remains, remains apart from his sanctioning. Nothing, nothing that remains, remains apart from his approval. The stars are suspended in the air because he wills it. The earth remains on its orbit and doesn't drift a single degree towards obliteration from heat or a single degree towards obliteration from coal because he wills it. Every single breath that you have ever taken in your life was a breath that was authorized by God. And the moment that he wills that it's time for those breaths to stop, they will stop. There's no obstruction to God in his sustaining of all of this. There's no stopping him. There's no obstacles that impede what he wants to do. Everything is kept through him. Acts chapter 17, verse 28, it says, For in him we live, in him we move, in him we have our being. In him, through him, everything exists. And to him. To him, from him, through him, to him. You see that? Origin, then the existence, the day-to-day, to the end. What is it for? What is it for? To him, to the praise of his glory. In other words, why is he doing it? That the whole universe might be a testament of his goodness. That the whole universe might be a testament of his righteousness, that the whole universe may testify to the praise of his glory, that the trees as they wave, that they will wave in testimony to his glory, that the sun as it rises and it sets, that it would rise and set as a testimony to his glory, that as the Mississippi River moves and its current drives down stream, that it would drive as a testament to his glory, and that as you live and you exist, that you would live and that you would exist as a testament and testimony to his glory. Why does this all-knowing God, why does this all-sufficient God, why does this all-powerful God spend any time with people like us, to the praise of his glory. You were made for his glory. What makes the gospel so spectacular is the fact that this glorious God would spend any time regarding us and thinking about how he might save us in our brokenness and in our recklessness and in our disobedience and our refusal to walk with him, in our fatigue of him. We literally, we literally, we literally 
act as if we have the right to get exhausted and tired by this God, to get bored by this God. Why would this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sufficient God spend any time with a people like us? To the praise of his glory. And so how does Paul end? How does Paul respond to all of this? Verse 36, the latter part, to him, to him be glory forever. Amen. Paul ends his song of worship with those words, to him be glory, to the all-knowing God be glory, to the all-sufficient God be glory, to the all-powerful God be glory forever. Amen. When you think about how glorious this God is, how perfect he is, how holy he is, how powerful he is, how knowledgeable he is, how self-sufficient he is, aren't you just amazed that he would include in his plans saving you? And if you are not yet amazed, why are you not amazed that he would include in his plans giving you eternity, offering you salvation, Offering you the ability to rest and enjoy him forever. Offering you a place with fullness of joy. Offering you a place with fullness of peace. Offering you a place where hope is restored and tears are gone. Are you not impressed with this God and what he is doing and saving you? The gospel becomes more amazing when seen in the light of how amazing our God is. And as we begin to understand how amazing he is, and as we begin to understand um, the, the, the one in which we live and, and, and the one in which we've been created, the one in which we have been created to give glory and honor to, as we begin to understand that rightly and truly, it will transform how we understand our salvation. And so for this moment, for this season, as we walk through salvation, this is where we begin. And this is where I encourage you to begin, to take the next couple of weeks. And when you, see, when you, when you feel the wind touch touch the crown of your head, then think about this glorious God who provided that wind, who has no need of anything and yet has decided to bring salvation to you. Let's pray. God, we love you and we give you praise and glory and honor.